Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Schechter. It is an accepted axiom of modern life that disruptive change is all around us. Almost every aspect of our lives has felt some or all of this change. It's equally true that what were once the traditional institutions of government and public policy that moderated and even sometimes democratized that change no longer exist. This, too, is part of the disruption. In this process, there have been winners and losers. Just as there have been during every great social and scientific upheaval, the last perhaps being the Industrial Revolution over a century ago. This time, however, partly because of the nature of change, the speed of communication, the complexity of technology, globalism, and overall distrust, the consequences have been even more profound. It's all led to a large measure of social upheaval, anger, and fear that we see today. Perhaps the progenitors of change have been too young or too naive to understand the consequences of their action. And those that did understand have been too blinded by greed. It's a combination that has shaken the country to its very core and which made Trump possible. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Anand Gerhardis. He was a foreign correspondent and columnist for the New York Times. He's also written for The Atlantic, The New Republic, and The New Yorker. He's an Aspen Institute fellow and political analyst for MSNBC. He teaches journalism at NYU and has received numerous awards and honors. It is my pleasure to welcome Anand Yerhardis to talk about his new book, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Anand, thanks so much for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. It's, it's great to be back with you. It's been seven years and I've missed you. <laughs> well, it's great to have you here. And, and, and certainly a lot has happened since. Two of the things that have happened, and, and I think arguably two of the underlying premises of, of Winners Take All, is that we have, first of all, outsourced change in some fundamental ways. And we have outsourced it to billion, millionaires and billionaires. And that we have also outsourced philanthropy and problem solving to the private sector. And that these two things have had, while well-meaning, a kind of corrosive effect. Talk about that first. You know, I, I often think about what has happened between kind of wealthy corporations and individuals, government and the rest of us with the following story. Um, imagine you know, you got a hen house. Okay, we are the hen. Jeff, you and I are the hen house. We are just hens in the hen house. Just people trying to go about their lives, the American people. The hen house had a guard for a very long time. And that was the government. And when things went wrong or someone needed to be protected from somewhere, someone else, uh, the guard, you know, did a, did a reasonably good job, certainly not perfect, certainly with flaws, but the government, you know, the guard protected the hen house. And in the last 30 or 40 years, an interesting thing happened. A fox came along and bit the guard in the leg. And that fox is wealthy corporations and people who have discredited government for the last 30 or 40 years. Government is the problem. Government's the enemy. Get government out of our lives. Let corporations play more and more of a role in our public life. So the fox bites the guard. The guard's bleeding and stumbling away from the scene. And now the fox says to the hens, oh, this is such a shame. You have no guard. And you have all these problems. Maybe you should get me as your guard. And that is, I think, the story of how rich people have taken over social change and the changing of the world. We all know that metaphor, the fox in the hen house, but I try to give it a backstory, which is that the very people who got government out of our lives, made government less effective, um, told us in our culture that government was an enemy instead of 
the common institutions we share to make life better for each other. Um, those people have now turned back on the scene and rebranded themselves as the firefighters of the arson they committed. Another part of that, though, seems to be beyond the, the mantra against government, which, as you say, for 40 years has grown and grown and grown, is that that guard, to continue the metaphor, the guard has gotten kind of old. And the change and all the things that have been going on have happened at a faster and faster and faster pace. And the guard simply got so old that he couldn't keep up. I think that's, I think there's a truth in that. But I would say, given that this period has been the period of austerity and pulling back and, and underfunding government, it's hard to blame government for falling behind and not being able to keep up with the changes of the modern world when we've been assaulting and beating and kicking it the whole time. Now, that said, I think you are right that even if we ha you know, had not um, been bludgeoning government, this has been a, a brutal and head-spinning 30 or 40 years. Um, just the kinds of change exactly like we had 100 years ago that have rewired our national economy and global economies, globalization, um, you know, automation, the internet, the genetics revolution. I mean, just the rise of India and China alone and the, you know, earthquakes that they caused for everybody in the world um, and on and on and on, you know, and, and then just internal change, racial and demographic change in this country, the rise of women over the last 30 or 40 years. Like we have been through a lot in the last 40 years. And I think it's fair to say, you make a fair point that our common institutions and our government has not kept up with the leading edge of, of change. And what that means in practical terms is people are doing things privately in this society that publicly we don't really know how to police. Look, look any further than Mark Zuckerberg. Look at all these people with cryptocurrency. We have no idea how to tax that stuff. We have, we have no idea how to find that stuff. You know, look at all the ways in which wealthy people use tax havens and tax shelters and the double dutch with an Irish sandwich and other techniques to, you know, avoid paying tax. A very large number of American corporations like don't pay income tax, corporate income tax in any given year. Um, so I think you could make a case that private endeavor um, and private striving has outstripped public capacity. And we are at a, a moment where we are ripe for a realignment and where we, and that's why one of the things I talk about in Winners Take All is the need uh, to pivot from an age of what I call fake change to an age of genuine reform, where we actually rebuild and restore our public institutions to be able to keep step with the world we now live in. It's interesting because government in many ways has been like the old line companies that have been disrupted. I mean, what's happened to government in addition to, to the pushback against it is like what's happened, what happened, you know, to Kodak or U.S. Steel or Ma Bell, that the disruption has simply displaced those old line institutions, government being one of them. I mean, I... Somewhat, I mean, I, I see what you're getting at, but you know, I, I think we don't give government a lot of credit. Like, there would be no Facebook if the government wasn't doing a million unsung things to allow that to be possible. Like, do you understand how good the courts need to be and how confident people need to be in contract enforcement and how well the SEC needs to work and, you know, and just how good, like, the, you know, the, the fact that you don't, these companies don't have to worry about people going underground and, like, cutting their fiber in the middle of the night? Like, 
there's a lot of things that actually work incredibly well in the society that allow all these private things to be possible. And what seems really ungrateful is when these private endeavors behave like prodigal children who kind of grow up and, and have no gratitude for um, what, was, what, was, what was done and what is being done every day that's not dramatic or flashy or exciting, but that is the chassis on top of which a Goldman Sachs or a Facebook or any of these other things sits. In many ways, it's, it's kind of an age-old battle between government and capitalism that we're seeing play out. Yes, I, but here's how I frame it. I think democracy and capitalism, or government and capitalism, is, an, is a healthy adversarial relationship, okay? When you go to a courtroom and you have an adversarial proceeding, Hopefully, you're not trying to kill the other person. You're having an adversarial proceeding in a court, and the idea is you try to get to some place that's that's the optimal solution. And from in different eras of our history, those two elements of democracy and capitalism have worked relatively more successfully together and relatively less successfully together. And I think what happened in the last 30, 40 years is forces in the business world, and you, some people trace it to the Powell memo by Lewis Powell when he was an advocate for business before he went on the Supreme Court. Um, but there was this move within the business world to depart from that tradition of what you know Jacob Hacker and others call the mixed economy, where you have thriving capitalism built on a foundation of a thriving democracy, and to actually start to develop a relationship of mutually assured destruction with democracy. And government suddenly was recast as not being the platform on which, you know, healthy and laudable private endeavor happened. It became the enemy of healthy and laudable private endeavor. And you see that turn. I mean, the way Eisenhower talked about government was just very different than the way, you know, Ronald Reagan talked about it. Mm -hmm. And by the time you get to a Bill Clinton, you see that even in the Democratic Party, there had been a passive absorption, almost as secondhand smoke, of the idea that government's not awful in the case of a Democrat like Bill Clinton, but, but you know, to be roused as, as infrequently as possible. Um, and I think part of what I wanted to understand in reporting this book over the last three years is how is it that rich people have come to believe that they are the saviors from an age of inequality, that they are also the architects of. It also goes to the fundamental idea of what the changes have been, dramatic as they've been, in science and in technology and in society in general. All of these changes have been pushed in many ways by individuals, by companies, and it's a question of who actually is in charge of that change, who's responsible for it, where did that change come from? And there was a time when it came from government and it even came from from mass movements. That's that's changed as well. I think one of the things that's interesting, so what I tried to do for Winners Take All is to spend time with people elites who are attempting to change the world in this new way that has taken hold, which is this kind of top-down, market-based, doing well by good, do-gooding. And what I found is that it's often very decent people who are sincere about making a difference, who are trying to do the best they can. But when people of, of privilege and of means 
step into the work of change. They change change. And they redefine it. And it's not always conscious, but they, the winners of our age redefine change in ways that are unthreatening to them. Okay, So on every issue that you and I could riff about here, you could imagine a thoroughgoing change that might be threatening to the winner's interests. And you could imagine a light facsimile of change that would, that would go easier on them. Okay, So let's take the issue of empowering women. Now, in theory, a lot of people, and certainly almost all do-gooding elites, would tell you that they're in favor of empowering women. Let's, let's absolutely do that, right? Um, but if you look at the evidence, the evidence is that the thing that really empowers women in other countries, um, many European countries, is family policies. Maternity leave is family leave, is childcare tax credits or universal daycare, things that actually, at a universal level, make it easier for everybody to, to play all their roles in a family, in a, as a worker or whatever. Now, as you know, that's going to be expensive for the winners of, of, of our time. That's, that's the kind of thing that costs billions and billions of dollars, right? Um, so what the winners do when they kind of take over change and, and, and shape the discourse around change, they don't, they don't say, well, guess we can't do anything about empowering women. They kind of make a counteroffer. And the counteroffer they make is something that would seem to gesture at empowering women, but would not cost them anything. So something like lean in and lean in circles or mentorship gatherings for women become very fashionable and popular. Why? Because it's a way of seeming like you are on the side of empowering women, but it's free for the winners. You're just basically telling women to solve the problem of their own uh, you know, shutting out. Um, there was a really interesting piece the other day in Quartz magazine that talks about the fact that much of the career advice that women receive is a form of gaslighting, if you really think about it, a form of psychological abuse, because it is telling women to smile more, lean in more, be more assertive. It's telling women to solve as individuals problems that are actually the society is imposing on them. And it's trying to trick them into thinking these are personal flaws instead of systemic worries. That's what I worry about when the winners take over change. They defang change because they don't want its teeth to bite them. How much of that, though, comes from a conscious decision to do exactly what you're saying, to make sure that it doesn't come back to bite them and create a backlash for them? And how much of it comes from the fact that given the world that these people live in, given the kind of management class that they are part of, that this is simply their natural instinct to solve problems in this way. That's what they've been taught to do since the beginning. Correct. I think that's a very insightful question. I would say there's the full spectrum. But I think it is absolutely true that a large number of the people that I reported on and spent time with and tried to understand for this book are, as you describe, they are. They tend to solve problems this way because this is how they think about problems. Right. When you're privileged, you don't tend to think about problems as being gross justice violations. You don't tend to think about problems in terms of the language of power. You tend to think about problems more as engineering issues. Got to you know, turn up that dial, turn down that dial, maybe tighten that a little bit. Um, you tend to think about it as 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 technical, you know, te things with technocratic fixes because you're a technocrat. Um, as one of the people I write about in the book who works for George Soros said, you know, if, if everybody, in the, you know, if everybody in the car speaks English, the solution is going to be in English. 
um, the winners of our age, particularly those who grow out of the entrepreneurial and business world, have a common language in which they think about problems. Those tend to not involve power and justice and the abuse of authority, but rather you know, tweaking and fixing and scaling. And so simply by virtue of their intellectual you know, orientation, some of this recasting of problems happens. The recasting of problems in a way that strips them of perpetration, strips them of, of you know, anyone ever, having ever done anything wrong, and actually turns them into these technocratic fixes that you can fix without hurting the winners. That said, there's another end of the spectrum, um, which is, you know, people, you know, I, I talk about this as like the spectrum of kind of from naive to shrewd, you know, so, so if the naives are kind of just trying to do the best they can, but, but blinded a little bit, um, there are also absolutely lots of folks in this era, elites, who figured out that you lubricate continued taking by giving, that you lubricate, you know, the opportunity to to keep things the same by talking about change, that you lubricate the um, whole idea of of um, you know wanting to siphon most of the gains of, of this economy for you and your friends by talking about impact and social this and social that. Um, you know, I think if you spend time in the canyons of Wall Street, you'll probably find a little bit more of the latter thing of like people who are pretty straightforwardly motivated by greed, but understand that some amount of gesturing towards change talk just helps the, the greed machine keep going smoothly. And then I think, you know, Again, this is a little bit of a stereotype, but if you if you go out to Silicon Valley, it does usually feel to me quite different. Um, I don't f- usually feel that I'm dealing with simple greed. I feel I'm dealing with people who are often quite sincere in their desire to make the world a better place and are maniacal and utterly blind to uh, anybody's vision but their own, and 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 therefore you know will not be questioned by journalists, will not be deterred by government, will not allow the public good to enter into their calculations because they are so confident that simply by being left alone in a cave, they're going to make the world a better place. How is different from previous generations of elites, those that, that may have been the moneyed class in the past, you know, the Rockefellers, families that grew up with money that were second, third, fourth generation? How is that different from the elites we see today that in many cases, particularly if we talk about Silicon Valley, didn't start out as elites. They started out as, as rebels. They started out as, as going against the status quo, against big institutions. They became millionaires and billionaires, and then they took on this elite attitude. It's a great question. You know, I would say when I think about the winners of the age that I have spent time writing about, I would say there's one important element of continuity with the past and one important element of change that I would highlight. So the continuity is that the people on top of a social order are not necessarily your best choice for reformers. In some ways, that's an obvious idea, but it's clearly not obvious enough because you know every charter school has like super rich people on the board of it trying to think about how poor kids should be educated. So... Uh, but, but, I, but I think it is the normal reflex of people with a lot to lose to be self-preservational. And it is the normal reflex of people who are on top of a social order to not want it to be changed. And so in some ways, the 
argument I'm making is these people aren't special. They're just, they're normal rich people. And that's fine, like power to them. But we should not be endowing them or imagining in them some special power to fight for others because they're just rich people protecting themselves, which is what rich people do. You know, if you think about, I don't know if you watch the show, but Downton Abbey, that world of like, you know, kind of feudal landed gentry Mm -hmm. in England, right? Or any number of other period movies you can think about. Those aren't bad people. Like the Lord and Lady Grantham figure, like they aren't bad people. They're very nice people. They're not ungenerous. You know, when, whenever you'd have an episode where like a serf on the edge of the manor who rents the land or has the land and farms the land would have a problem, like they would help out or they'd be understanding or they'd let them, you know, whatever. They, like they, would, they were nice people. They were generous, right? But they would never support any effort to change the power structure of where they lived so that they wouldn't be the people with all the land and all these people wouldn't be renting space on their farm. In other words, they were willing to help people in any way possible except by risking the entire social order that kept them being Lord and Lady Grantham. Um, All I am saying in this book is that that's a normal reflex for rich people and we should not necessarily trust, we shouldn't at all trust rich people um, to be the revolutionaries against the social order that is everything they value. Um, what I do think is new in our time, the discontinuity, is I think an idea has taken hold in our time that, um, that actually innovates on and almost turns upside down the whole Adam Smith theory of the invisible hand and, you know, kind of trickle down, which flowed from that, which is that leave rich people alone because if they just do them, positive benefits will, will flow down to society. That's kind of been the paradigm since, um, you know, the, the er- early urban commercial societies of, of Europe and Adam Smith theories and others. Um, I think we are actually living in the middle of a new theory that is not that theory that actually goes further and says, no, rich people should not just do them and like, you know, build their coal factory and, and, and buy their yachts and, and we'll just benefit incidentally. No, rich people are so good at life. They are so good at making decisions. They're so good at thinking. They're so good at evaluating information. They're so amazing with those spreadsheets. Their PowerPoint skills are so top-notch that they should actually assume control of the reform of the world, right? So you have this book a few years ago, in 2008, 10 years ago, right as the financial crisis was, was gathering steam called Philanthrocapitalism, like how the rich can save the world. And like, you know, I write in the book, a lot of people would be forgiven that month for thinking the rich were ruining the world. But this book made a case. It wasn't the trickle-down Adam Smith invisible hand case. It wasn't just like leave them alone and good things will happen. It was like this, these people are hyper-agents, the, books call them, the, the book called them. These people are specially capable of fixing education, fixing social mobility. And that is the interesting idea that has happened in our time that I think is just devastatingly wrong. Not only... The idea of trickle-down has been hugely discredited. The idea that letting these people roam free would help us all clearly didn't happen. And now it's like we've doubled down on it and said, 
Now, actually, we believe that putting the people with the most to lose from change in charge of change is the only way to make change. It's one of the most preposterous and successful ideas of the modern world. It's, it's a function of elitist education and this idea of, of the managerial class, I suppose, that we talked about earlier. It is. And one of the ways, you know, I started the book not with a plutocrat, but with a young woman in her senior year at Georgetown making her decisions about what to do in life. Because that's where it all starts, right? It's right. when you're 21 or 22, you have talent, you have this education. Which way do you go? How do you invest a life? And I talked about how this woman, like so many young people today that I meet on campuses, that I'm sure you meet, want to change the world, want to make a difference. That's a really dominant striving in their imagination. And yet, what happens to Hillary Cohen over the course of four years at Georgetown, and particularly that final year, is she gets sucked in by this story that if you really want to change the world, not help 20 people or 30 people, you really want to make real change, transformational change, you want to change the lives of millions of people, well, you got to work at McKinsey or Goldman Sachs first. And some of your listeners may think, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. But this idea has totally dominated and come to dominate the, um, the campus culture and the recruitment culture and the internship culture on many elite college campuses, such that Hillary Cohen eventually felt like if she didn't go to a place like Goldman or McKinsey, she did an internship at Goldman, and eventually she went to work at McKinsey. If she, she felt that if she didn't do that, she would almost be shortchanging these people she wanted to help in her life down the road because she wouldn't have the chops to help them. And so you're absolutely right that a part of how the age of extreme inequality has been sustained and upheld is through the co-opting of young people full of idealism and their drafting into a management track instead of a social justice track, an activist track. I mean, Hillary Cohen could have gone to law school and filed lawsuits against things. She could have devoted herself to, you know, making, getting 10 million people to register to vote who aren't currently voting. She could have worked on any of a number of issues that I, in my view, are all very valuable to the kind of society we have. The fact that she was pulled in that particular way and that so many others like her have in some years Half of the graduates at, at these elite colleges go to you know, banks, consulting firms, and a couple Silicon Valley employers um, is, is a major part of how uh, we have upheld uh, this extreme inequality and, and, and this age, frankly, of unsustainable, you know, rollicking anger. Given that history tells us that power never seeds itself easily— and given how entrenched this, this elite power is that we've been talking about, why is there any reason to think that anything short of real revolution will change this? Well, it depends how you define revolution. I mean, I don't think we, I certainly hope we don't need to have violence in our streets um, for, for to, you know, to get a more just society. I mean, the, the reality is what it would take to do a lot of this is not crazy and it's not rocket science and it, it, it just requires a willingness to do it. Um, and I think, you know, a political, we need a political revolution in this country. We don't need 
you know, a violent revolution, but we probably do need a political revolution. Getting the money out of politics would be a political revolution. You know, having, uh, frankly, reigning in the philanthropic world because you actually end up having companies forced to pay people properly and forced to, you know, submit to regulation and forced to pay their taxes so that they don't have, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars to give away after fleecing the society and causing social problems, you know, that would be a political revolution. Um, I think thinking about ways to allow and help young people pursue public service and the public good um, rather than have to work at, you know, in, in the private sector, thinking about how to, you know, maybe forgive their tuition if they, if they do public serving work or things like that. That would be, frankly, a revolution if we could fix you know, if we could reorient how young people invest their talents in a, in a big way, um, you know, actually figuring out how to empower women and families to not face grueling choices, um, between, you know, their professional ambitions and dreams and their desire to, to grow families, that would be a political revolution. But also none of those things that I describe, I don't think, you know, none of them are like absent from the world. Like you could find, one or more or 10 or 20 societies in the world that do most of the things I just mentioned. So I think what we have to decide is do we want to continue? We're not, we're not on a good path. Does anybody in America think we're on a good path? And the people who voted for Donald Trump clearly didn't think we're on a good path. That's why they voted for Donald Trump. And the people who didn't vote for Donald Trump clearly don't think we're on a good path because Donald Trump's our president. So we kind of agree that like things are not going well. And when things are not going well, you have to be bolder and you have to do, you have to work harder to think about what changes, but also you have to be willing to look within. And I wrote this book because I partly want to convince the general public to stop letting billionaires change the world for you. But I also wrote it because I believe elites can be better. And I believe that many people, a sizable minority in my experience of people within these elite circles know that they are standing on a house of cards and they want to figure out how to get to a different place. And I actually feel quite confident that President Trump, in my mind, is not uh, the first we have seen of fake change. To me, President Trump is the culmination of a generation of fake change. And my hope is that the end of the Trump presidency will also be the end of the era of fake change and the spark of an age of genuine reform. Anand Gerardas, his book is Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Anand, I thank you so much for spending time with us here on Radio Who, What, Why. Thank you. Thank I'll see you in seven years. Thank you. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.